Welcome to MobyCast. We're glad to have you here, especially if this is your first time listening. So if you think of the trailer as the front door to MobyCast, maybe this episode would be like the entry room or foyer. You know, it's because if you just randomly pick an episode out of our backlog, it could seem a little technical and you might be like, why are we, why am I listening to these two? You know, what do they know about software? And what did they bring me that I couldn't get other places? Um, and you might also be thinking, you know, how can I really learn software from a podcast? Uh, there's videos, there's books, there's blog articles, there's courses, there's so many ways to learn software. And podcasts typically are more just like, oh, I want to listen to an interview with this famous person or, you know, just be entertained for a while. But Chris and I really believe that we can communicate technical concepts that are difficult in this medium and that it's a great way to level up your career. Uh, But don't just, you know, believe me when I say that, Uh, get to know us a little bit. So that's what the, you know, this episode and actually the, the series of episodes is about. So this was originally episode 39 and here we are remastering and re-releasing this. And uh, it's the story of Chris early in his career when he runs up against the internet as an employee for Microsoft. And the thing that he builds there ends up, well, I'm not gonna tell you what happens, but let's just say it ends up being the springboard for a journey, uh, a startup journey that really, you know, made his life what it is today. And it gets into some cool technology like document databases and AWS DynamoDB, and uh, I think you'll like it. Um, So definitely give it a listen, let us know what you think, and stick around next week for part two. Welcome to MobyCast, a show about the techniques and technologies used by the best cloud-native software teams. Each week, your hosts John Christensen and Chris Hickman pick a software concept and dive deep to figure it out. Well, hello, welcome, Chris and Rich. Hey, guys. Hey, John. Hey, Chris. Hey, hey. so we we are number 39 now. It's hard to believe that in just a short year, we've done this many episodes of MobyCast. Today, I think we have a lot to talk about, so I just hope you've had a good week so far and have been doing fun things, but instead of talking about that, we're going to jump right into it. Um, Chris and I just got back from reInvent and had just an amazing time there, learned so much, met new people, and and got really excited about the future of AWS. So rather than do the obvious thing, which would be an AWS reInvent recap episode, I, I noticed there were like 15 of those around different places and blogs and everything. So everyone's seen plenty AWS recaps, reInvent recaps. So we're gonna we're instead gonna talk about one thing that that really was fun and interesting for us at reInvent, uh, particularly Chris. We're gonna do a little history today. So we're gonna talk about the birth of NoSQL and DynamoDB. So yeah, I think in order to get started, before I hand it over to Chris, I just want to say that this is gonna be a little bit of Chris doing some personal storytelling because he has some real world experience that's related to this story. And so we're going to try to weave some of that into um, the stuff we talked about with AWS. I'm really looking forward to everybody being able to learn more about Chris's history. And then we're also going to, of course, talk a lot about 
specifically what AWS is doing now um, and how it got to where it is now with DynamoDB. Um, so, yeah, with that, Chris, maybe we can start by talking about the birth of NoSQL. Yeah, and, and with that, um, I will totally cop to the fact that I will be showing my age here by, by giving... By, by talking about this in the context of a history lesson, right? To kind of indicate just how long I've been in this in this business. You sound like you're about 27, so. <laughs> Good. Well, um, uh, some days I wish I felt that. Some days I feel that way. Um, <laughs> right, but, right. <laughs> but more often than that, that's not the case. So we, you know, John said we were at reInvent. reInvent for me is always exciting to hear the keynotes. There's multiple keynotes spread over the spread over four days, I think. But the two ones I really look forward to are Andy Jassy's keynote on Wednesday, and then follow Thursday. Um, Warner Vogels gives gives his keynote, and so Andy's is kind of more toward more more along the the business aspect. Lots of product announcements and kind of just demonstrating how AWS is crushing the world, and very interesting. And then the next day is is Warner's turn to follow up, kind of more from a from a technical. And kind of a, a vision, like wh- where are we, where are we going, type thing, um, and then dive in a little bit deeper into to technology as well. Given that Warner is the CTO for for AWS, and during this year's keynote from from Warner, it was it was just super super interesting and relevant to me because he starts off his keynote um, with a slide saying, "Hey, I'm going to tell you guys about my worst day at Amazon." We're like, okay, let's hear it. And so he says, you know, his worst day at Amazon, December 4th, 2004. This is in the, the peak of the, of, the, of the holiday season, right, where they have lots and lots of orders coming through the system. That was the cutoff day for their, um, they had super saver shipping um, promotion going on at that time. So it was, if you place your order by December 4th, then you get super saver shipping, which I think was... I don't know if it was free, but obviously it was very inexpensive. That was the cutoff date to place your order in order to guarantee Christmas delivery, right? So I'm yeah. trying, to, trying to get my head around the date 2004. So in 2004, I was working for a company called Store Perform, and we were building software for retail giants like Sears and Best Buy and Lowe's and Albertsons uh, in order to help them make all their stores the same. So kind of just interesting for me to think of that because we're talking about Amazon who came along and crushed all those companies. So 2004. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, and I mean, that's, this is 14 years ago, right? right so right. it kind of like feels like multiple generations away. I mean, this was, this, this was pretty early days, although we'll get into this. It wasn't the early days. There was, there was every taste before this. <laughs> so they have this, this very busy day of traffic. And then of course, the inevitable happens. Their um, their database system goes down, so they were using Oracle DB, so a relational database database system for storing all of their customer data, their orders, shopping carts, using it to basically power their e-commerce site, and that crashed um, due to a data database bug. So they were down for twelve hours on that day. So you have all these customers; they've been promised. Place your order by today, and you're going to get it by Christmas. Mm-hmm. But they can't place their orders, right? They're getting these error messages. They're getting these screens saying, "Sorry, you know, server not available, server too busy, whatever." So obviously, a disaster for the engineers and for the operations people, and hence one of the worst days that that um, Warner had at 
at Amazon. So he, he sets it up, you know. When gives he, us- sorry to interrupt again, but when he said that, I like the only thing I could think was, well, you, you did keep your job, so. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I digress. Go ahead. Not, not only did he keep his job, he got promoted. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so yeah. So let, let's. We don't have to cry tears for for Warner. It, it spoiler alert. It works out okay. Right. So they they make it through somehow, right? And they probably have to do something like, okay, we have to extend the, the deadline, and we're gonna eat some shipping costs and whatnot. Um, but obviously, a very traumatic, expensive. And just really untenable um, situation, right? Because it's not like traffic is going to be slowing down the next year, right? It's it's this is this is a problem that it's like it's now hit them in the face and they have to contend with. So obviously, as part of this, they have their you know go away and, and do their post mortem and and ask themselves, you know, like okay, what do we do? You know, what do we do next so that we don't have this this problem in the future? You know, he talks about in his keynote where like the, the key realization was that relational database management systems just aren't built. They're not designed for the internet, for the cloud. And this was a really core fundamental problem. I just um, want to put a, a quick technical point on that. Um, the reason is that our DBMS systems are like a single thing, a database. It may, may be that you are able to have kind of multiple machines pointing at some disks or something, but really there is not so much like a, the databases aren't really very clusterable or they can't be scaled horizontally. Like you just can't have a hundred thousand machines in your database, in your RDBMS database. And that's kind of what he's getting at. It's a single thing. If it goes down, you're down. So look, this was a, a common theme around that time with just, um, Dealing with internet scale is you know scale up versus scale out, mm-hmm. um, and and really you know things like relational databases um, and even servers like really the only answer was scale up. Right. The only way the only way you can handle more load is you throw more hardware at it, right? You get yeah. a faster machine, so you you double the CPU power on your on your machine, or you you increase the size of the disk, or you add more memory. So that's scaling up, but it, you can only go so much, right? Like there's a limit to how big of a machine you can have, right? versus scale out says, hey, instead of having just one of these things, let's go create clusters of these and let's have multiples of it. And so we'll we'll scale out horizontally instead of scaling them vertically. And that ended up being like what was necessary in order to to deal with the, the massive traffic and, and load that we have now. And just just to make sure I mean I, I sort of stated something pretty confidently, but just to make sure I really understand, I think the reason for that is that databases are super stateful. And every time you talk to them, you're basically saying, you know, database, given your understanding of the state of the world, I want to know this, the answer to this question. And you just can't sort of split that state over a bunch of machines that aren't aware of each other's state. So essentially, yikes, you've got to, you've got to just scale up. Like you can't just spread that out because all those machines wouldn't be aware of what the other one is doing. So it's that statefulness of databases that make, that prevent them from being able to be scaled out very easily. Yeah, this this is. I think you know, cozy cozy up people. Get get into a recliner. Get a get get a nice quilt. Sit by the fire because this could. This is is super interesting, and there's there's so much, so much here to unpack. And like this is all. These are all good points. And this is this literally like these are the kind of issues that were really occurring for the first time in the late 90s, the early 2000s. And this is what we were all talking about and struggling with and, and 
these very kinds of issues. So you're kind of getting to the concept of we really need sharding. We need partitioning mm-hmm. of data mm-hmm. um, in order to have these, these clusters that can be scaled up and, in, you know, individually and relational database systems. Um, yeah. They did not lend themselves well to that, especially with, you know, by having models where all the data is intertwined. So yes. um, having to do joins becomes very problematic. Like how do you split that data up? How do you, how do you partition it? It's, it's just, just not built for that. Right. I'm, I may be trying to read rows from one place and, and something else is trying to write to that same thing at the same time. And it's like very, it's like, ugh, it's contentious. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, this might be a, a good point too, to kind of point out that as Werner was, was kind of going, going through this talk and they were doing their, their postmortem and, and analysis and figuring out like, okay, what went wrong and what can we do to, to fix it? And, you know, what are just what is the criteria here? I said, you know, they took a look at the data that they were storing in these relational database systems um, for their for their customers, for their, you know, customer information, for the orders, the shopping carts and whatnot. And here's what they realized. They realized that 70% of that data um, that they were accessing was in a single table and it was they were only selecting a single row. Right. So very, very simple. I mean, literally key value, right? I'm going to go look up something mm-hmm. by primary key and I'm pulling back that, that value. That was 70% of the, of the data and the traffic they had. And they were using a relational database system for that. Another 20% single table, but multiple rows, right? So give me all the items in a shopping cart for a particular user or something like that. Doesn't involve any joins. It's, it's hitting a single table. Again, not really relational data at all. It's pretty simplistic. There's just lots and lots of that data and it needs to happen happen a lot, many operations, and it has to happen quickly. And it was really only 10% of the remaining data and traffic involved multiple tables, right? So they, they look at this like, man, 90% of the data that we're throwing in here is really simplistic and, and a relational data. It just, it's not relational data. So why are we using a relational database system for that? For, you know, that was definitely one of those big aha moments for them. And when I'm sitting there in the audience and listening to Warner go through this process of like saying, okay, here's what happened to us. Here's the kind of things that we thought about. And here's what we realized about the data. I was like, oh my goodness. Like this is like deja vu because this is exactly almost verbatim. This is exactly what happened six years prior for me personally, when I was at Microsoft Quick interruption to ask you to please go to mobicast.fm slash show dash notes and sign up for our show notes. Those give us a chance to send you the show notes once a week. Um, They're detailed outlines that have all the information that we present in the show, which makes your email searchable. Really cool. And we definitely don't use that address to spam you. In fact, we can barely remember even to send out the show notes every week. So thanks for signing up. I was at Microsoft in the late, late 90s, and I went to Microsoft. One of the reasons why I actually got hired there was I was kind of fortunate in that I got to work on the very first wave of internet applications. So I was working for a, um, a research project at Motorola for, for the, um, the Department of Defense. We were building a suite of tools for, for engineers so that they could, they could build like um, ASIC chips. And 
So we'd started off building all of this in just native code. It was all Unix-based code, Unix-based windowing system and whatnot. And it was a lot of work, right? And it was also like, at the end of the day, it would only, you'd had, you had to run this on like a Solaris workstation. And so, you know, while we're doing this is when um, the internet's, is starting to come on the scene. You have things like the Mozilla browser and web pages starting to appear. And then Java came out from Sun. And this had the promise of you could write code in your applications and it would run inside the browser. And it was it would run across platforms. It would run anywhere. So anywhere where that browser supported, where, where Java was supported in that browser, your application would run. And so we made the switch to say instead of building these app, this, this suite of applications for for Unix based systems, let's let's rewrite it as Java applets, um, so that it can now we have any every kind of platform supported. So the net net is that like using the alpha version of Java was <laughs> super super painful, right? Um, Especially for a seven year old. <laughs> exactly, um, but you know it was my after school project. Um, <laughs> But it, it was, um, it's kind of surprising how far we did get. And that work is, again, just super fortunate for me because that really led to the interest of Microsoft and their recruiting team to allow me to go to Microsoft and work over there because if, this is this, so this is like 1995, 96. And if, remember, this is the, around the time when Bill Gates has his, his famous memo where basically they acknowledge, you know what, we missed this ship, um, this internet ship. And, you know, we really do it's time to steer, steer the ship in that direction. And it's all hands on deck. We're the internet is here to stay and we really have to, to double down on this. And so it's arguably, you know, they're kind of arriving, arriving at it like you know, last year, the year before they finally turned the ship all the way. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they were, it was definitely, you know, they were slow to respond to this bigger company. Um, they also, you know, they had the Microsoft network, um, which was, you know, their dial-up online service with lots of applications, a, a you know a robust online community, um, very similar to what um, AOL had as well, and you know there are other ones I think like CompuServe and just a, a bunch of those, right? But that's that was kind of like the status quo, and then the Microsoft Network had millions of of subscribers, right? And they were all paying a monthly fee, and all was well. The internet comes along and it, and it completely disrupts that, that model. Um, right. And that was one of the reasons why I, I, I went to Microsoft was like, they basically now have the charter of saying, we have to switch from a proprietary dial-up network to now be an internet network. And all these applications that we had that were on the proprietary network, they now have to be, they, they now have to run on the internet. So that, that work that I did of building internet apps in Java was a, a direct link to now go do this, this work at Microsoft. You know, we, we have these huge challenges ahead of us. Like, how do we even build internet applications? Because this is, this is the first wave. Like, they haven't been done before. The, the internet is brand new. Um, the, the tools don't exist um, for the most part, or they're, they're just starting to, to, to come on the same. So things like web servers, even like, I mean, this is like the first, the first wave of web servers and um, things like CGI bin. That was the way that you actually had 
web servers that you could write code for it. And I don't know if anyone remembers, but CGI bin was basically every time a web request comes in, fork a process, right? Right. Um, right? And run that process. And the output of that process is what you return back to the, to the web request. So, so we had our work cut out for us there at, at, at Microsoft. We were in, it was an interesting situation because we, right out of the gate, we had millions of users um, and there's very few other, very few other companies out there that had that kind of problem at that scale right out of the gate. I don't even think it was like a handful of companies at that point. You know, it could have been maybe AOL, maybe Netscape. I'm trying to think what kind of data those users might have had, like beyond looking at just sort of what I might call today brochure type websites where it's just pure information. They're just static websites. Like what, what kind of user information did, how were they interacting with these applications? What were they even trying yeah, to do? You know, the Microsoft network, you know, at that point, they had a pretty rich set of applications that people were using um, and things ranging from like things like message boards. Okay. There were, um, you know, message boards, news groups, chat rooms. There were um, various like interest groups, um, different types of entertainment and content. A lot of it was pretty interactive, right? It wasn't just just sit there. Sit. It wasn't like TV um, where you just sit back and consume it. It was you, you were interacting with it. Some of it was games, just a, a range of, of, of various applications. Probably the common theme was just you're in a community with other people, right? And interacting with those people. Right. Right. So, so yeah, so that, that was our charter is like, okay, we already have this existing suite of applications that work for the proprietary dial-up network and it's all native code and it has its own protocol for sending packets over these dial-up networks. Um, now we have to open it up to the internet and go over HTTP. You know, how do you, how do you build these things? And it was a lot of work, but pretty early on, right? Like discovered this, we had this, this big problem of how do you deliver these systems at scale? And particularly, how do you scale the data? There were tools um, for us to scale the stateless components of our architecture. <clears throat> so we didn't really have load balance. I mean, we, we kind of had load balancers. They were, we called them virtual IP appliances. Um, so it was kind of the same kind of the same principle where you could have a a cluster of of web of stateless web servers um all fronted by a by a single ip and it was either sometimes it was software based and sometimes there was a hardware appliance to do that but so we could scale the load with that right we could have these web servers um and even with the application servers um, that we're doing, like business logics per se, those were scalable as well because those were stateless. The the one thing, the big, big thing we had a problem with was the data layer. Because at that point, I mean, really the only option was a relational database. And being at Microsoft, that choice was SQL Server. Right. So, so that was really the only the only repository we had for for storing and retrieving data. And this was a constant problem for us right out of the gate because we're now dealing with, like I said, we have, we have millions of users, like literally right out of the gate. We have all this data that we need to store for all these types of applications that we're building. You know, again, it's like messaging and chat rooms and user profiles and preferences and um, right. some history. That, some of that, like, common to every single user data would all have to be in one database. Mm -hmm. And and what, I mean, at at that point, like there was, 
not even the, the concept of active active with SQL Server. It was you literally like there was one database, right? Right, right, yeah. That, that was it. And you could have a backup database, but it was cold. Like if the active database did go down, then you manually had to cut over, right? Um, and bring up the backup database. Right. So, um, so very much it was like we were limited to this scale up architecture. Um, and it was just a constant problem for us. And, and, you know, the writing was on the wall as well. Like we, like we're having problems now and like the goal, like we are going to have more and more users. Our apps are getting more and more complicated and sophisticated. We're storing more and more data about our users. This just doesn't work. The other, you know, the big realization for us there was like, this is kind of silly that we're storing in a relational database because it's not even relational data. What we actually ended up calling it, we called it internet data. Mm -hmm. Um, And really what we were describing was kind of like document-based data. It was like these, these, these snippets of data that didn't have strict schemas, but it was, and, and they were, they were being accessed at by, you know, by key. So it was really like key value lookups of snippets of data, things again, like user preferences or cookie, cookie information, or, you know, history details or like chat messages, um, these kinds of things. That's what we were putting in our database. That's what was causing it to, to fall over. Right. So, you know, again, this is like 1997 and then going into 1998. That's when myself and a colleague, um, Marco DeMello, um, who was the technical program manager there um, with me, and we worked very closely together with him being the program manager and me being the developer. And we came up with this, like, let's go build our own database. Like, let's build an internet database for this stuff because it's really, like, this is not relational. We really think that we can build something that is so much more scalable and can handle the performance. We want to have things like partitioning. We don't need things like joins. Mm-hmm. We really just need to optimize for this scaling out. Basically, when we were looking as like, you know, you, you can have a load balancer for your web layer and for your application layer. What if you could have a, a load balancer for your data layer? Right? Mm-hmm. This is what we were going for. So, so we kind of got the go ahead, right, to go to, to go do this and to do a prototype. So I think we spent four or five months going and building a prototype. And, and we ended up taking one of our applications. Um, it was a, um, I believe it was a message board type application that was running on SQL Server. We wrote this new database that was optimized for all these kinds of problems that we wanted to solve. And we replaced the SQL Server with this brand new database and showing the application working against that. Um, so we got... Definitely some heads turned with that. And you, yeah, I, I can't imagine how you proved though that it could scale. Like, you know, you didn't have the option to fire up 100 EC2 instances and throw, you know, throw load at it. So, how did you know that it would work? So, you know, I mean, one of the great things about working at a company like Microsoft is the level of resources that they have is, is you know, quite unique. The building that I was in, just about the entire first floor was a duplica of our production data center. Um, Racks and racks and racks of servers. Um, And we actually, we had dedicated teams, ops and testing teams. So for us to do load testing with just, just throwing tremendous amounts of traffic at, at it was like, we could just do that by walking down the stairs um, and going down to our, to our, our test 
data center facility. Cool. So we, we so we we had we had tools like that at our disposal, and then also just from an architecture standpoint, just showing like okay, this is what we're doing to you know to address. So that gives a lot of credence to it as well, backed mm-hmm. up things like load testing and performance testing and whatnot. So we were kind of off to the races at that point and uh, ended up kind of getting funded um, internally to, to have a larger team to do that. So I think we ended up then adding five or six people to our team to go actually build this into something real. And one of the unfortunate things for the time that during the time that I was at Microsoft was the fact that we would have um, frequent reorg reorgs that happened so this is where the powers that be would you know i don't don't know how exactly it happened but i would imagine it's you know into a room and start shuffling around some some papers and drawing stuff on or on the the whiteboard and uh, moving people around and whatnot and so these you kind of learned like whenever you did move just don't even bother unpacking most of your stuff. Just leave it in the boxes in your office because chances are in six months, you're going to be moving again to a different office in, in one of these reorgs. And so naturally one of these reorgs happened during this time, um, kind of a, some new new management, you know, folks leaving that division that I was in due to some politics and just strategies and, and whatnot. It was kind of decided like, look, this is cool. Um, what you're doing here with this with this this new type of database, but you know we're we're we're, we're the Microsoft uh, network group. You know we're MSN. Like that's not our charter. Um, this this feels like this should be over in the in the core database group. The folks that are doing SQL Server. So why don't you stop doing that and instead go work on something else? And so for me, that was the the last straw. Yeah, I, that's brutal. I was yeah, I was not. Not happy with that at all, and, and and I was I was I was just felt like I was you know um, screaming into the void where it was just like like how can you walk away from this like this is a huge problem and it's like it's our problem today but five years from now it's going to be everyone's problem right because the internet is here to stay the internet's not going to shrink it's not going to stay stagnant it's going to grow and like we're just we're just getting started people so like. This is a huge opportunity. Someone's going to solve this. Why can't it be? Why can't it be us? So with that, that's when I decided to leave to leave Microsoft and go found a company to go build this and to you know deal with this this issue. Like, how do you build an internet scale database? So that now we get into the next the next chapter of the story and and you know going off into to startup land. That's where I'm going to stop you. I think because we've we've spent I think enough time for this episode, so let's uh, let's do a serial episode and and find out where this goes, and then bring it back to how your new company that you're going to talk about next episode ends up relating back to Dynam- DynamoDB. Sounds great. All right, thanks everyone. Right. For joining. Thank you. Uh-huh. Thanks guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to that episode. You heard Chris Hickman, John Christensen, that's me, and you also heard Rich Datz, who was our original producer and the person responsible for the idea of MobyCast. We miss him, but we still work with him in other parts of our business. 
Um, and also special thanks to our producer, Roy England. And we are real people that you can find and really communicate with. And we're available at mobicast.fm and also on Reddit at r slash mobicast. See you next week.